We're getting into the book of Hebrews. <laughs> they bought it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 3. We're continuing our study here with lightning speed. What I want to do actually this morning is, is uh, pray before we even read the text because I'm going to, uh, in reading the text, sprinkle in some words of explanation uh, and um, kind of start the sermon as I'm, as I'm reading through the text. So let me pray here. Father, I just thank you for the way that you honor your word, which says that where two or three are gathered, you're there in the midst of them. And your presence here this morning, Lord, is so sweet, and it is so good to be with the people of God and worshiping you. I thank you, Lord, for the work that, the mighty work that you're doing in our midst, in people's lives, and the way you're changing us and moving us into your grace. I pray, God, that this morning your word would come alive, and you've got to make that happen, just like you make it happen with the music. So I relinquish that to you. It's your responsibility, Lord. Your word will not return void, and that is your promise, and so it's your responsibility. We relinquish it to you and say, Lord, use whatever is said here for your glory. Build your kingdom. Free your people. God, I think there are scars that will be addressed here this morning that even come from religious backgrounds, that especially come from religious backgrounds that need to be loosed. And in Jesus' name, I want to right now come against religious strongholds that keep people from the freedom for which you've set us free. And I pray, Lord God, that we would leave here freer than we were when we came, and that shackles and bondages and false ideas would fall by the wayside as you set your people free to do but your spirit of love inside of us compels us to do. In your name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hebrews chapter 3. I'm going to break this down. The author of Hebrews gets a little bit complex sometimes, and so there'll be different periods in this uh, series on Hebrews where we're going to just need to stop and pick some verses apart. These six verses that we're going to preach on this morning are not by any means the most difficult. They're not even... You wait till we get to chapter 6, and then we're going to have to slow down. But um, still, I want to just pause and just kind of explain what he's getting at. Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly calling, holy. He just told us in chapter 2 that he makes us holy. We don't make ourselves holy. Brothers, standing for brothers and sisters, siblings. We are made the siblings of Christ, he tells us in, in, in Hebrews chapter 2. We partake in this heavenly calling. That is our calling. Simply to be the family of Christ. To be holy because of what he's done for us. Fix your thoughts on Jesus. Turn your mind towards Jesus. A continual theme you find throughout the Bible. Where your eyes are, where your spiritual eyes are, there your heart will be. That's where your transformation will come. What you think about is the most important issue you have in your life. What you do is simply a consequence of what you think. So the author says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one, verse 2 now, he was faithful to the one who appointed him, that is the Father, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. What's going on there? It's this. As you know, those of you who have been here for a while, the Christians who uh, the, the author is writing to are Jewish Christians who are having serious second thoughts about Christianity. And they're thinking about going back to their Judaism not getting rid of Jesus altogether, but just sort of demoting him down to the level of a prophet, perhaps the level of Moses. Now, to a Jew, Moses is the supreme hero. He's the, the figurehead author of the Pentateuch. Uh, he was the one through whom the law came. 
Uh, he was the one who led the children of, of Israel out of Egypt. He is the hero of heroes for the Jewish people. He represents the major thrust of the Old Testament. He represents the law. As they're thinking about going back to their Judaism, they're thinking about going back to the theology of Moses, the covenant, the dispensation of Moses. The author does not say Moses was bad at all. Moses was faithful. Moses, what Moses said was good. It was inspired of God. And there's still a lot to learn from it to this day. In this respect, Moses and Jesus are on the same par. In terms of their humanness, they both were faithful. But that's where the comparison stops. And now, now the, that's where the similarities stop. And now you'll see how Christ is different than Moses, superior to Moses. They both were faithful, but in verse 3, Though they were both faithful in God's house, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. Okay, both Moses and Jesus are on the same par in terms of their faithfulness, but Jesus is superior to Moses for the same reason that a carpenter is superior to the house that he builds. He's worthy of greater honor. When you say that a house is nice, it's, it's got good architecture, it's well-built, it's solid or whatever, it's a beautiful house, you're complimenting the house, but you're really complimenting the carpenter of the house because the house would be nothing without the carpenter. So also Jesus is superior to Moses as the carpenter is superior to the house. Moses did great things, but ultimately the credit goes to Jesus Christ who is the Lord of Moses, the author of Moses, and everything that happens in the house of God ultimately gets credited to Jesus Christ. He's superior in that way. Look at verse 4. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. The relationship between Jesus and Moses is that of a builder to a house. It is that of God to everything. Jesus, the author is saying, is in a class by himself. In terms of their humanness, they both were faithful. Moses is a good guy, good revelation. But Jesus is not simply one of the things that God does in the world. He is God in the world. The relationship between Moses and Jesus is the relationship between creator and created. Jesus has higher honor, to say the least. Verses 5 and 6. Moses was faithful as a servant. Moses was faithful as a servant in God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. Okay, Moses was faithful. He did what God told him to do, but he was pointing beyond himself. What he was saying had a reference to the future. We'll talk about that more uh, shortly. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold on to our courage and hope of which we boast or which we profess. What the author is getting at now is this. The relationship between Jesus and Moses is the relationship between the owner of a house and a servant working in the house. And the house that the author is talking about are the people of God. What you get in the whole nutshell is this. The word house here, it actually is the word, we get the word economy from. It means to build something. God in history is building something. What he's building is us. What he's building is a people. What he's building is a bride. What he's building is the kingdom of God. Moses is very important in building the kingdom of God. Very important. But Jesus is the one who's doing the building. Don't, therefore, go back to Moses. 
Never prefer Moses above what we have in Jesus. Jesus is worthy of greater honor. And the revelation he brings is a greater revelation. The purpose for Moses in building the, the, the house was to lay a foundation. He was a faithful servant in God's house, among God's people. He was giving the law. It is good. He was giving the law which reveals the holiness of God. That is good. He was giving the law which reveals the will of God. That is good. And we still have a lot to learn from that. But the purpose of the law ultimately was this. In giving the will of God and in showing the holiness of God, Moses showed us that we cannot ever on our own basis, by our own striving, with our own deeds, live up to God's standard of holiness. And that was the greatest service Moses or anyone in God's house could ever do. The law, Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 4, is there as a guardian to lead us to school, he says in Galatians chapter 4. The law is there as a guardian to lead us to Jesus, in other words. What the author is saying here to these Christians who are beginning to doubt, who are thinking about going back to their law mentality, because it's a whole lot neater. It's a whole lot more black and white. You don't have a lot of confusing issues to think about. There's a lot of security there, and their brothers and sisters won't reject them. They're thinking about going back. But what the author is here saying is this. The purpose for Moses was to lead us to Jesus. Now that Jesus is here, don't go back to Moses. The purpose of the law is to show us our desperate need for a Savior because we are sinners. But now that the Savior has come, don't go back to living in the law. The purpose of the law is to show us our desperate need for grace and our desperate need for forgiveness if we're ever going to get right with God. But now we've got that mercy. And now we've got that forgiveness. Don't go back to the law of motivation for living. Don't go back to the law as a way of getting right with God. The law was there to show us our need for a change in our heart, not just in our behavior. It was there to show us a need for an internal transformation. And it was there to show us our need to have the Spirit of God working through us if we're ever going to be empowered to live for God. But praise God, that internal transformation has taken place. Amen? God has sent forth His Spirit. The blood has been shed. The reconciliation has been, been made. And now the Bible says for all New Testament believers, God Almighty dwells within us to give us a new heart, to make us a new creation, to revolutionize our inner being. Don't leave that and forsake that to go back to the law method and the law motivation for doing things. Hold fast to the salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Moses was the greatest servant in God's house. But in Jesus Christ, we've got the owner of the house. In Jesus Christ, we've got the God of all creation. In Jesus Christ, we've got the Lord of the entire household. In Jesus Christ, we've got the carpenter who builds the house. And if he has laid the way of salvation up before us, if he has by his own blood, by his grace, and by his tremendous love for us, reconciled us unto himself, don't ever think about leaving that and going back to the security of your rule-orientated, quid pro quo sort of mentality in relating to God. Hold fast to Jesus Christ. There is a world of difference. Don't go back, he's saying, because there is a world of difference between living for God, according to the law, and living in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible doesn't usually talk about Christians living for Jesus. In fact, I don't know if it ever does. It talks about Christians living in Jesus. And there's a world of difference between those two things. There's a world of difference in terms of your motivation. Don't go back to an Old Testament motivation. See, in the, the law motivation for doing things is to get right with God. You do things because you want to get right with God. You feel guilty if you don't do these things. 
But see, in the New Testament, you do things, some of the same things, but you do them for an entirely different reason. You do them because you're already reconciled with God. It's not what the law says that that makes it passe, makes it old. It's why you do it. In the Old Testament, you do it to establish a covenant with God. Today I'll live for God, and that will make my covenant with God okay. But in the New Testament, because of what Christ has already done for us, we don't do things to try to get right with God, to try to get a covenant with God. We do it to express the covenant that we've already got for free, the covenant that we've already got by grace. In the Old Testament, you do things, you do the behavior, you do the law, you do the oughts, you do the shoulds, because you want to establish your identity as a child of God. But when you understand who Jesus is and what he's done for you and what it is to live in Jesus, you do the holiness, you do the same things. But now you do it to express what is already there. To express what is already there. And there is a joy and a power and a peace and a freedom that is there when you are living life to express what is true about you rather than trying to constitute what is about you. There's a freedom there that no set of rules and no set of obligations could ever give. And that's what Christ calls us to live in. Don't go back to the external motivations. Here's a weak analogy, but it might work. When I was dating my wife, I found out what her will was. This is sort of the analogy is to the law, but it wasn't a law, but it was, it was an analogy. I found out what her will was, and I wanted to do her will because I wanted to get my wife. So I did the right things. I, I learned, I'm never very good at this sort of thing, but I learned, uh, how, you know, I asked people, how do I get my wife? And they would say things like, well, do this, do this, and what does she like, and find out what she likes. Ask her what she likes. There's a novel idea. And do them! And that will get her to love you. So you do things to get your wife. But then we got married, and we entered in this covenant. And now I've got her. <laughs> and now I can do whatever I want. <laughs> no. No! See, and now, I do the same things. I do the same things, not as well as I should, but I do the same things, but for an entirely different reason. I do them because I want to do them. I do them to express the relationship we've already got. I'm not trying to get anything from her. I'm not trying to, you know, still win her over or whatever, though it's good for husbands to keep on pursuing their wives like that, but I rather am expressing. It's much more joyful and much more fun to do it this way. In fact, you end up doing more things this way where there's not an ought on you because you're worried about losing her, but rather you've got this unconditional relationship together, so you love and you send the flowers and you remember the birthdays and you pick up messes to express the love that is already there. That's the way the Christian life should be. We're married to Jesus. You live life to express what is already there, out of joy, out of celebration, not in order to keep, to keep a technicality because you're afraid of going to hell. But here's what happens. You have this joy, you have this life, you have this freedom, and now if you put a rule on top of it, you, you ruin it. You just ruin it. You lose the joy. Now you still do it, but now you're doing it for a different reason. To continue my lame analogy, but maybe it will work. There are times, in fact it happens with remarkable uh, frequency actually, where I have it on my heart to do something. I'm going to do something to make my wife happy. I'm going to do something because it will please her. I'm going to do something to show her how much I love her. And just before I do it, she'll ask me to do it. It's like, no! Oh, really, this happened just the other week. There's a big mess in our, in our, in our kitchen. Uh, it, the, the girls had not been doing their duties, which is pretty normal. 
And, and uh, so the dishes were piling up, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go in there, I'm going to tackle this thing, because it is such a mess. So Shelly was just getting ready to leave, and I was thinking to myself, when she comes back, I'm going to have a clean kitchen. Oh, this is going to be good. Just as she's leaving, she says, honey, would you just, could you help out a little bit with the kitchen? It's like, no, rat! See, see now there's no points. I don't get any points for it. It's like... <laughs> Now, see, even though it was in my heart to do it, now there's a rule that says I'm supposed to do it. And so now it looks like at least I'm doing it because she asked me to. In fact, now I am doing it because she asked me to. And this causes, you know, then she says, what, am I never supposed to ask you to do anything? And she's got a point there. Maybe if I do it more, you know, more frequently, she wouldn't have to ask me. But that's a different issue. None of your business. Buzz out. (laughs) You have those kind of squabbles. But the thing is, is that it, it undermines, it undermines the joy. You have what's in your heart anyways, and now there's an ought, or a, a, a should attached to it, and it takes away the joy. Believers often go back to a more law mentality, using guilt, or using shame, or using a billy club to get people to do what maybe they'd want to do anyways, if you just gave them some space to grow into it. But instead, it's a way of control, and so we put oughts and shoulds on people. Let me give you a classic example. This might step on some toes, but let me step on some toes. But it's a classic example. Many places, maybe most places, I don't know, but they they, they preach uh, that Christians ought to tithe. It's a rule. It's a mandate. And if you don't tithe, there's a verse that says you're robbing God. Malachi chapter 3. You're robbing God. You ought not to rob God. God gets really angry when you start robbing him, huh? Bring in your 10% into the storehouse of God. And they preach that. It's found in the Old Testament. Trouble is, it's only found in the Old Testament. It's the only place where the church preaches a doctrine, bases a doctrine that does not have any New Testament precedent. It's an Old, it's an old Testament doctrine. But a way, it's a way of securing an income. If you get people to believe that, you, you've got a guaranteed source of income. You don't have to trust God to move in people's hearts. You don't have to trust, trust people to, to grow into it. You've got now a leverage on them to get them to tithe, to give a certain percentage of their income to the church. In the Old Testament, that was the law. That was part of the law. In the Old Testament, that was their tax. They had to, the, the, the temple and the church, the, the, the religious stuff was run by the government. They had what was called a theocracy. So it was part of their government was to run the temple and to support the Levitical priesthood or whatever. They paid 30% of their income to, to the government. 10% of that went to the temple. That was their taxes. And if you tried to cheat the temple, you were robbing God. God says to the Jews in the Old Testament, pay your taxes. That is a tithe, 10%. In the New Testament, you never find anyone putting a percentage on, on, on Christians about what they should give. What you do find is this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-8, through 8, Paul says, he lays out a couple principles here. He says, give, let, let every person decide in their heart what they're to give. It's an, you decide. It's about your relationship with, with, with Jesus Christ. You decide on it. Secondly, give out of the joy of your heart. God loves a joyful giver. Give out of the joy of your heart. Thirdly, give as you are able. If God is, is richly blessed you, you've got a lot of income, you're more able to do it than if you're just trying to feed, barely feeding the mouths in your household. Give as you are able. And fourthly, no one should give out of compulsion. That's interesting. Second Corinthians chapter 9, no one should give out of compulsion. Because here's the thing. We now are, we've got the Spirit of God living within us, believer. You've got the character of Jesus Christ living within you. 
He's creating a new perspective in your life. He's giving you new motivations and a new heart in your life. And when you begin to understand what that means, you realize that it's not a matter of of doing a percentage for God. You are living in Jesus Christ. You are living in a new reality, and it means this. He has died for you. He has bought you with a price. You belong to him. Everything about you belongs to him. He owns everything about you. And that's the beauty of the relationship. All that I am, if I know who I am in Christ, all that I am belongs to him. Not 10%. Everything I am belongs to him. My gifts belong to him. My house belongs to him. I got it on loan. Well, and the bank, but, but Jesus owns the bank, too. My family belongs to him. All my money belongs to him. All my job belongs to him. Everything about me, everything I've ever had, everything I ever shall have belongs to Jesus Christ. That's not an ought in my life. That's just the reality that I live in. And now he puts his spirit within me and begins to bring a change in my life. So I begin to see things the way he sees them. And if I begin to see God moving, I want to invest in that. As I begin to see God moving in people's lives, I want to invest in that. As I see people who are in need, you begin to have God's heart for it. And you begin to give to that. You say, look, take it. You begin to be freed from the self-centeredness that characterizes the world. As you grow in the Lord, His Spirit works within you. You get freed from the narcissistic black hole mentality of everything's for me, it's mine, mine, mine. You get freed from that. That's the greatest bondage you can ever get freed from. And now you live saying, how can I invest in people? How can I give? Maybe some of us to the church, maybe some of us to your neighbor, maybe some of us to the person in your small group. But it's a matter of living with the Spirit that Christ has. We say, I'm going to give, I'm going to give, I'm going to give. And now if someone says, comes along and says, well, what percentage are you giving? It's like you are royally missing the point. You're, it all belongs to him. And I love, there's joy in investing it in people's lives because it's in my heart to do it. What happens a lot of times is you have people who have a heart to give. They want to give with joy. They're, they get excited. They see God doing things in the ministry. They say, man, I want to just take whatever blessing I have and, and support that with it. But then someone comes along and holds a spiritual gun to their head and says, you got to get 10%. Are you giving 10%? And now it feels like a bill. I got the phone bill. I got the car bill. Yeah, I got the church bill. 10%. If, if someone would just back off and say, you know what? As God moves in your heart, do it. Some people at first are going to not give. Because the only motivation they've ever known is someone telling them they got to, they ought to, they should. Bad Christian for not giving. So you take that off. And for a while, they, they just sit there. It's like... They don't have any motivation to give because they, they, the only motivation they, they knew was gone. And that's okay to do for a while. Some people need to live in that for a while. But then as God begins to move in their heart, like God begins to change their perspective on things, you find that they start doing it for free. And now it's fun. Now it's willfully. Now it's joyfully. And what I find is that people begin to... T- some people, if God's blessed them, some people begin to give way more than they ever would have given if you had a rule that says they've got to give a certain percentage. They do it out of the joy of their heart. They do it because God has blessed them. They want to invest in the kingdom of God. And that's being set free. Now, it means something. Now it's part of the relationship that you have with Christ. Don't go back to the ought motivation for doing it, to the external stuff. Do it because God's moving in your life. That doesn't mean be undisciplined. In fact, this requires far more discipline. It doesn't take any discipline to do it because someone's guilting you out. That just takes conformity. But see, God wants us to be disciples. And discipline comes out of the inner heart. And the Lord may tell you 10%. Maybe there are people that the Lord has put on their heart to give 50% of what they earn to the Lord. That doesn't mean giving it to the church, by the way. 
You're giving to the Lord whenever you invest in his kingdom. You see someone in need and you give to them, that's giving to the Lord. But there are people who say, you know what, I can survive off of 50% of what I earn. The rest of it, I'm going to invest in the kingdom. And there is a joy in that, a peace in that, a power in that, that a percentage, tax accountant mentality, never could, 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 could give. People getting into these issues. Well, should you tithe on the basis of your gross or your net? And, uh, you know, that stuff. As the Lord leads you in your heart. Don't go back to the law motivation for living. Secondly, don't go back to the law mentality. Now, the law mentality, I mean by, what I mean by that is this. The law itself doesn't specify this mentality or this mindset I'm going to talk about, but it frequently accompanies it. When people start thinking in terms of doing the rules and doing the externals, they frequently fall into this trap. Let me illustrate what I mean by the law mentality this way. I read this uh, illustration in a book on, on, on Friday. It's a great book. It's by uh, Tim Hansel. It's called Holy Sweat. Someone here gave me this book, and I, I lost the note, and so I don't know who you are. Meet me in the visitor's room, and I want to thank you. Uh, it's a great book. I didn't plan on I told her I wouldn't get to it for a year, and I started paging through it on Friday morning, and I ended up reading the whole thing because it was great. He uses this illustration. It's about passion and living for the Lord with passion, and it's good. But there's an illustration of this preacher that went to a Presbyterian church some time ago, and you've probably heard this one before, but it illustrates the point well. He's a visiting pastor, and he stood up and says, I got three points to make in my sermon. And most people are thinking, oh, of course, every sermon has three points. This one's going to have three points, too. Yawn. He says, my first point is this. There are two million people that are hungry right now in the world, and 10,000 kids are going to starve to death today. My second point, and everyone's kind of feeling good because this is going to be one fast sermon, and that means they can get home and watch the football game. My second point is this. Most of you don't even give a damn. Now there is silence. And my third point is this. Most of you right now are thinking about the fact that I said the word damn instead of thinking about the two billion people that are hungry. And then he sat down. And that was one great sermon. But see, here's the thing. When you live in this mentality, this, this doing certain things to keep your relationship with God, to get your relationship with God, you tend to notice the wrong things. You tend to major in the minors and minor in the majors. Someone broke a rule, and the rule is that pastors aren't supposed to say damn. And now they're mad, and they're offended, and they're never going to come back again. But what about the rule that says you're supposed to be concerned for the hungry? It's just that that rule is less obvious. Swearing is an obvious rule. But see, what happens is you begin to be tyrannized by the, 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 tech, the, the, the technicalities. And it can happen that you begin to define your well-being in terms of the technicalities you keep, and you begin to judge other people's in terms of the te- technicalities that they don't keep, and you tend to lose the forest through the trees. It's amazing to me that when the Son of God became a human being, became a man, the main problem people had with him is that he wasn't religious enough. Think about it. The creator of the world comes into the world, and he's just not religious enough, and that ticks a lot of religious people off. The ones who really get a lot of life from doing the technicalities. And so Jesus locks horns with them over and over and over again. He says this to them in Matthew 23, You, you Pharisees, you vipers, you whited sepulchers, so polished on the outside, rotting to the core on the inside. You tithe, every little thing. You tithe mint and cumin, which was all these spices they had. They just, every little thing, you know, if someone gives them a cent, they got to think about one-tenth of it going to the temple. Fine, well, and good. But you miss the weightier matters of the law, like love and faithfulness and mercy and justice. But you sure got your tithe down there. He says you strain at a gnat, but you swallow a camel. 
The idea of straining out a net is this, that when they would drink a cup of water, they would put a strain there and drink the water through the strain in case a bug flew into it because they didn't want to defile their precious holy bodies by eating something unclean. Insects are not mentioned in the Old Testament as one of the clean things you can eat, thankfully, and therefore, they would strain it out. He says, you guys go around with your little strains. Oh, I got it. I, I didn't eat a gnat. He says, you're swallowing a camel. Camel. He wasn't referring to a cigarette either. He's talking about a major camel. That's what can happen when you live in the technicality stuff. You, you just get a, a wrong orientation. Talked to a guy two weeks ago. Gave a seminar at this church on, on marriage and stuff. And he came up afterwards and wanted to talk with me. He didn't want to find out anything about his marriage. He basically wanted to, me to agree with him that he was in the right. His issue was this. His statement was, his wife is wrong and he is right. <laughs> this is always a good start. Because, see, his wife broke some techni- technical rules here. She moved out of the house. That makes her wrong. She broke the covenant. She moved out. And then she filed for divorce. I didn't file for divorce. She filed for divorce. That makes her in the wrong. And she does not submit to me. The Bible says she's supposed to submit to me. That makes her in the wrong. And she's probably going to get married, re- remarried first. And that means that she'll commit adultery. That means I'll be free to get remarried without sin. Just got a little legislation. She's wrong, 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 wrong. I'm right, 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 right. So I asked this guy, well, can you tell me uh, why, why she moved out? His, his response was literally, I don't know. I thought, well, you had a great relationship here. Uh, you know, did you ever try to find out? You know, did you ever try to get in and see what was aggravating her? See maybe what was going on in her life? Did you ever... In fact, as long as you're quoting Ephesians chapter 5, you're really big on that verse here. Let's talk about Ephesians chapter 5. The Bible says there that you're supposed to submit to one another. And then it says, men, here's how you submit. You die for your wife like Christ died for the church. Lay down your, wife for, for, lay down your life for your wife. So I said, have you died for her lately? Have you been crucifying your, uh, yourself? Have you been denying your will in order to win her back, in order to get her to, to win her love? Have you maybe not died for her, but have you offered to pick her up milk on the way home? Offered to shovel her driveway? Maybe find out what it's like raising three kids on her own? Is there some way you can help? Are you dying for your wife? And if you're not, don't even talk about having her submit. But he's a, here we got the technicalities. Oh, yeah. The technicalities. Well, he's basically throwing away the Bible. I did that to illustrate something. It was all planned. Don't worry about it. See, you can, you can be, even if he was perfectly right, and he wasn't, but even if he was technically right, he was totally wrong. You can be technically right and totally wrong. You can be totally law-abiding, but your spirit is totally disorientated. You know a guy one time, his father was an elder in a Baptist church on a big company. He was so righteous and holy, praise God, that he forbid everyone in his company to smoke. Isn't that righteous? Just forbid it. Half of his company was run by illegal immigrants who were being paid slave wages. You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. It just gets all screwed up. People who, who never swear, but they also never love. Straining at gnats, swallowing camels. People who serve hours on a religious committee. Oh, I'm in this committee, I'm on this committee. I'm Three nights a week, they're, they're away to committees. But some African-American family moves into their suburban neighborhood, and they don't have ten minutes to spend with them, even though no one else in the neighborhood is spending any time with them. Straining at a gnat, but swallowing a camel. And see, that is what the Lord has freed us from. 
By coming down, the builder of the house has come down, has given his life, has washed us clean for free, has made us his precious bride, spotless and holy in his sight for free. And now the only question is, is, is this, how will the bride respond? The Lord wants us to respond with holy living. The Lord wants us to respond by getting freed from the stupid shackles that, 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 that bring us down. The Lord wants us, in fact, to respond by giving our life away. Whether that means in terms of time or talent or finances, the Lord wants that. But he wants it for the right reasons. In the Old Testament, it doesn't matter why you do it, as long as you do it. In the New Testament, everything hangs upon why you do what you do. You can take a person who, who uh, doesn't give anything to the church and tell them they've got to give 10% or they're going to hell, and now they give 10%. But you know what? You have not helped that person at all. Because the problem's not in the fact that they don't give. The problem is that they're not seeing Jesus for all of his beauty, or they're not... They're not letting the Spirit move in their life or whatever. But whatever the issue is, giving them one more ought or do or should or commandment is not going to change things. God alters us. As the worship team comes up here, I want to sing a song here. I will never be the same again. The Lord changes us, not by upping the fire of hell a little bit and upping the guilt a little bit and upping the shame a little bit. And don't go back to that. He alters us by getting on the inside with his love. How it looks is not at all the issue. How it is, is the issue. With us, it means this personally. It means that we are called, Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand fast in the freedom for which he set you free. The issue is this. It takes a a resolve not to go back to that. Because that is easy. That is external. That is manipulatable. That is controllable. It takes a resolve to say, I will live in the freedom and the grace for which he has set me free. And change will happen in my life from the inside out. And as I relate to other people, we have that same mentality. We look past the oughts and the shoulds to love them on the inside because that alone is what permanently changes our life.